shooting. Skimmer Way near Lakeland, Charles 478, Tango. Thank you for joining us on Inside EMS. Now the always entertaining Chris Zebalero and the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. It's about that time of the week, everyone, to go Inside EMS. I'm your host, Chris Zebalero, and I think we've had a really great week. Seasons are starting to change. The, the leaves are changing. I mean, it, it's just like a rebirth. I guess it's not really a rebirth if uh, things are dying, but uh, I don't really know what I'm talking about. But let's go ahead and uh, bring in the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. Kelly, how are you doing? I'm fine, man. Speaking of dying, many many doves and, and prairie dog died this weekend on my, my Colorado trip, which is a rebirth of sorts for me. So. so do you eat prairie dog? No, I don't. So you just no, kill them, you don't eat them? Don't kill them. Oh, you don't kill them either? Nope. Well, I kill them, but I don't eat them. Interesting. How about the dove? You eat the dove? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've heard that's really kind of good. Uh, That's some good fowl. That's some good whatever it is you call it. Uh, My wife talks about that, uh, you know, she enjoys a dove, but I've never had it. It's it's pretty good. It's pretty good. We turned a lot of expensive ammunition into smoke and noise and and, uh, ate roasted meats and drank craft beer and just, just did all sorts of manly and well, even girly things, but we we had a good time. Well, let's not talk about those girly things because I'm afraid to hear those stories. But well, the girls were enjoying the beer and the and the, the shooting and stuff too, so I can't all say it was a manly thing. Well, Kelly, before we get to the news, let's go ahead and take Sean Eddy's uh, tip of the week for our listeners and for you out there who don't think you can live on an EMS salary. Go ahead and check out Sean Eddy at Money Smart Medics, and his tip of the week is setting a per meal budget of $5 while on duty will help you save an average of $150 a month. And I got to think, I mean, sometimes we go out to lunch and we just kind of look at the menu. We kind of order and order and order because we're so hungry. You know, Sean's telling us just go ahead and keep a, a, you know, a $5 budget and bring nothing but those three $5 bills. So for your breakfast, for your lunch, uh, just bring two with you if you have a 12-hour shift and see if that doesn't help you uh, with your savings. And that savings at the end of the month, think about putting it in a fund towards your retirement account. And we appreciate Sean giving us that uh, money tip of the week. And a lot of people are really kind of raving about those yep. tips of the week, Kelly. Oh, yeah. It makes a huge difference. The the save $5 a, a, a day thing was, was awesome. Um, and my girlfriend has started to uh, send me send me off to work with a lunch packed, uh, and that that makes a makes a dent in the bottom line at the end of the month for certain. Oh man, if you think about it, and you're spending you know five dollars mm-hmm. each meal, fifteen dollars a day. I mean, it, it it does add up, man. But and I, I eat healthier too. I'm not eating crap, and that's yeah. uh, that's even even better bigger dividends. Yeah, and it's one of those things that, you know, sometimes when we don't have the time, that McDonald's and that Taco Bell is just fast and it's just quick to get something in our stomach as we're trying yep. to move around, but it's not healthy. So no. so I think you're attacking two uh, two things there, saving some money, eating healthy, so that's really good. But let's right. go ahead and get to our news, and why don't you go ahead and give us our first story of the week. Well, uh, aside from the, the um, San Francisco commissioners looking at the uh considering the fire chief's refusal and uh over the uh their response time standards that we've uh, talked about before and the uh the uh vote of no confidence by uh a certain member of the uh, certain members of the fire department there comes a related story that boy they have uh in maryland they have in anne arundel county they have managed to cut paramedic response times by 27 percent and and hold on to your hat san francisco they did it by adding more ambulances to the fleet imagine that it's like witchcraft 
they put five new ambulances in service, uh, and uh, that has cut back. Mo- most of these are BLS ambulances. Um, they've cut back uh, the number of uh, protocol or the dispatch protocol questions they've asked before assigning a truck, and that's cut about a minute off their response times right there. But by uh, less uh, less pointless questioning and, and more ambulances in the fleet, imagine that. They were able to seriously cut their response times back, and they're, they're actually going to looks like they're going to meet uh, NFPA response time standards for the first time in their 50-year history, or they're uh, either either will very soon, or they're not far from it. Right. So, you know, one uh, of the things that I got from this article, Kelly, and it was very, very interesting. You know, when you think about how do we make response times, really, it comes down to resources and making sure that you have the right mm-hmm. resource, right resources on the street for the right times of day. And you and I have been. Uh, not very friendly when it comes to fire-based EMS. But I got to tell you, the folks out here in Maryland, one of the things that they did is they delayed the schedule uh, purchase of a $1.2 million ladder truck for 2014 purchases for the purchases of ambulances and to put more paramedics on the street. And I got to tell you, man, if you're going to be in the EMS business, this was the right choice to make. And I got to tip my hat to the folks out there in in Maryland for uh, making this uh, decision because really when it comes down to it, uh, we're getting more EMS providers to the people that need us, and uh, and they're making it work. Yep, yeah. Kudos to uh, County Fire Chief Michael Cox on on that decision. You know that that uh, it's uh, kudos to uh, Chief Cox on that decision. Um, you know, eighty percent of their calls are EMS calls, which is pretty much the standard for most fire uh, fire service based EMS systems, um, and he. They put the uh, the system's money where its mouth was. Uh, you know, they they bought fire, uh, ambulances and delayed the count, uh, delayed the purchase of that pumper truck or that ladder truck, uh, which will be bought in the next fiscal year. So, um, imagine that. It just uh, it's amazing how uh, it happens so rarely that I'm actually kind of flabbergasted when I see it done right. Yeah, and uh, you know, again, tip of the hat to those folks down there because we're going to be as loud as we can when it comes to uh, you know not meeting the response times. And you know, but we're one of the also things going to uh, we're also going to give kudos when they're due. And uh, yeah, I think um, Anne Arundel County uh, deserves a, a pat on the back for doing it right. Right. You know, one of the things my story is going to go to Kelly. And we talked about this last week, and you and I kind of had a little uh, tiff for, uh, tit for tat where we were talking about the uh, you know the sexual abuse that's been going on in the ambulance. And well, we've got another one again. Let's go down to Orange County, Florida, and it seems that there is a it seems that there is a firefighter paramedic that is being accused of uh, fondling a patient while she was unconscious. And, of course, she kind of woke up and kind of knew what was going on and talked to the nurse when she got to the hospital. And, uh, you know, they went ahead and notified the supervisors and started that investigation. But, you know, again, more and more, uh, you know, we kind of went back and forth about this last week where it's you're saying it's the news source that's bringing it to light more. (laughs) I'm saying it seems that uh, it's it's a little bit more prevalent than it needs to be. But I I just want to reiterate the position of we gain our public's trust. We gain our customers' trust by delivering the highest quality of patient care, by being dedicated, you know, by being professional. And we have to stop taking advantage of the situations where uh, money comes up missing, drugs come up missing, or, um, you know, uh, we're, we're abusing people in the back of our ambulances. You know, it, it, it begs the question, what is going to be, I, I still haven't abandoned my position that it's no more prevalent than it was, uh, than it has been in the past. We're just hearing more about it. But, um, 
my uh, my girlfriend has a has a saying she's very fond of perception is reality and if and if that becomes the perception uh, uh, among the public uh, who who has entrusted their care to us um, then uh, effectively that is the reality so you know what's it going to take to to at least clean up our image or we're going to have to do things like you know put cameras in the back of the rigs to to be able to dispute these kind of things or you know you don't want to condemn a, a fellow uh, medic without due process that's what the, the legal system is for uh, but at the same time um, if they've had their day in court and were, uh, were proven to be guilty uh, then then we don't need to stand behind them anymore and we need to vigorously condemn their actions uh, and try to weed out those people from the ranks but you know how are we going to uh, to kind of stem this uh, or, or defend ourselves against these allegations or, or make them less likely to uh, to be levied is it going to take things like um, better education is you know of course always the, the answer we throw out uh, and, and tighter standards. but um, I would I can't help but thinking that the cameras in the back of the rig might be uh, might be the you know the nuclear response to this sort of thing. You know, yeah, you, uh, you said that before, and I was going to jump on that, and I'm glad you you kind of closed with that. And it seemed like you were saying that in a almost like a punishing. You know, we, do we have to put cameras in the back of amb- uh, ambulances? But there's really nothing wrong with that thought as well. I mean, especially now we talk about you know the Ferguson thing that we're in the middle of up here in, in North St. Louis County, and a lot of the fire departments are. I'm sorry, a lot of the police departments are now moving to uh, cameras on their uniforms. And I've, I've looked into it just to say, do we need to start considering this as well? Of course, it's nothing that I'm considering to move to. But if it's something that I need to look at, I want to be prepared at least that I've looked into it, costs, so on and so forth. But is there really is there really a negative to putting cameras inside these ambulances? I mean, I think it could be very helpful. Uh... I, uh best way I'd respond to that is the way I'd respond to, to anyone who, say, proposes a, a new law uh, for something. Well, there ought to be a law. Well, the litmus test for whether there ought to be a law um, is would you support it if it were enforced by your worst enemy? So let's put cameras in the back of the rigs. Now let's imagine how they might be abused or, or, or used to micromanage uh, patient care decisions in the back and, and, and what kind of Pandora's box that opens. I would hope that EMS as a profession is mature enough that they don't need the all-seeing eye of Big Brother and a nanny to to uh, overlook their their uh, every action. You know, you don't see these these things in treatment rooms at uh, at hospital emergency departments. No one has a camera on the nurses. No one has a camera on the doctors. And I like to think that that uh, EMS uh, is medical care. Uh, you know, you don't see uh, firefighters who who go in and do uh, recovery and rehab. Uh, they're not wearing cameras on their helmets to uh, to make sure that they don't, you know, steal stuff from patients' homes because it it really not that big of an issue. Uh, I, I think comparing it to uh, body cameras and dash cameras on, on uh, police officers is a bit of a apples versus oranges uh, uh, comparison because uh, you know the way they interact with the public is fundamentally different than the way we do. But you got to but you got to admit you've got to admit though that if the people are going to do wrong and there's a camera there they're probably not going to do wrong you know we well, we, we would like to be think in the back of the truck in the first place why that, shouldn't that it be why can't we do that and put it in the back of the truck and then have it to where we can even yeah. pipe that pipe that feed into the ER so they can see the patient before they come in I agree on on the on the face of it 
it sounds like a great idea. I just think it is also ripe for uh, um, abuse and, and unforeseen consequences that we may not uh, grasp as of yet. So it sounds like well, we need to bring this to the clinical issue one day. Yeah, we'll we'll have to do that. Uh, we'll have to cover that another week, and I'll you know I'll I'll slay all your uh, all your arguments uh, forcefully, but definitely something that to uh, to bear some further thought. Well, let's go ahead and go to our clinical issue, Kelly. And you and I, uh, we've had some discussion about it, and I think we're going to have a very lively debate here. And we just heard that great story that came out of Anne Arundel County in Maryland where they're trying to meet response times. And one of the things that got me thinking is, why don't we now move to a process of putting more BLS providers on the street, less ALS providers on the street, take those ALS providers and move them more into a community role, maybe have a couple of ALS providers that run ALS intercept if it's needed, you know, but uh, so it made me start to think about that process. And I think there's a lot of blueprints of the future that that's the way they're going to look. And I got to tell you, I just don't feel comfortable with that concept. Well, uh, I think it's a it's a great concept, actually. I was about to say before you before you waffled, I was going to say that the uh, the measure of a man's intelligence is the degree to which he uh, agrees with your position, and by that estimation, your IQ just trumped about thirty points. Uh, because I do think that we uh, systems would be better off if they put more BLS providers on the streets, uh, easier to field, easier to staff, uh, a little little easier to pay. Um, and, and dialed back the number of ALS providers they had. I think that's a more efficient, leaner EMS system. So what, what happens to the concept then? And let's talk about IQ. You talk about my IQ dropping uh, <laughs> 30 points. I mean, just coming in with that accent, I don't know that. But anyway, let me ask you this, though. What I, happens to the concept? slow. I don't think slow. Okay, thank you very much. That's <laughs> what I'm writing this slow because I know you can't read very fast. But... <laughs> So, but let me ask you, where's the concept of right patient, right time, you know, right outcome? That goes out the window, doesn't it? I mean, when we start to talk about that we're not having the advanced level providers on the cardiac arrest calls, we're not getting advanced level uh, providers on the respiratory arrest calls, when we're not getting those advanced level providers that can do 12-lead interpretation, what, what happens to that thought then? Well, you, you know why we're not having them there? Because they're too busy running calls that, that do not require their unique knowledge and skill set. That's why we need more BLS providers and let the ALS providers do ALS things. There's, you know, with, with the caveat that if you've seen one EMS system, you've seen one EMS system. And, and, and what works for, for one may not work for all. But that, I think, is a, a tiered response BLS-ALS system is a, is a, a very efficient system model, particularly for urban areas. But it could be made to work for rural areas as well. You know, you, you look at, uh, well, let's com- compare and contrast a couple of systems. Volusia County, Florida. Volusia County made the, uh, their EMS system made uh, the uh, industry news a few years back because they took away endotracheal intubation for their first response medics. Uh, and as it turns out, that Volusia had an all ALS system. They had ALS first response uh, fire departments uh, and uh, dual medic ALS uh, staffed uh, transport units. And their first pass success rate uh, at endotracheal intubation for the first responders was in the 40% range. Now, the, the transport medics were twice as good at 88%, which is good only in the, in the uh, sense that a crap sandwich tastes good if you slather enough mustard on it. But that is a textbook example of skill dilution and rust out. 
there were not enough there's a finite number of, of ALS procedures per uh, per year and way too many ALS providers to divide them among and they just didn't have the, the net, uh, needed exposures now you compare this to Boston uh, EMS who has a pretty extensive BLS ALS uh, tiered system and if the medics are transporting a patient in Boston, uh, they need ALS care. They're getting IVs, they're getting medications, uh, they're getting uh, advanced airway control, uh, and the BLS guys handle the, the vast majority of the other calls. And as a result, their 12 lead EKG interpretation skills, their endotracheal intubation uh, success rates, and all those other metrics that we like to look at are, are on a par with the emergency department physicians are handing them off to. I think that's a, a good example of a success story on, on how a BLS, ALS tiered system could work. So, but you don't think about the, the cost of that. So when you think in concept of, you know, a, a tiered system, they also send a lot of those places up there, and it does, uh, sometimes in Boston, depending, they're sending two units to the same call. Brockton EMS, they're sending, you know, Natick, uh, Natick uh, Massachusetts, they're sending two units to the same call. That's very costly. And in New England, they kind of do that in a lot of those cities. You know, what goes back to the concept of, I mean, you're talking from the clinical care, I'm going to come to you from a financial concept. Where's that money come from? We need to take that extra money and we need to pay our providers better instead of saying, I need ALS providers, I need BLS providers in different vehicles, uh, and we're just going to run up the cost of that budget. Well, you know, their their providers there in Boston are, are paid very very well for uh, for that area. The, their wages are extremely competitive, and they manage to make it work. And, and I don't know that they send to. Uh, I'm not you know uh, intimately familiar with their dispatch protocols, but I do know that they take an, an MPDS uh, dispatch determinant and and modify it to fit their own system's needs. Uh, so they don't use. Um, you know, cut and dried uh, MPDS uh, dispatch determinants. So they're not duplicating all those calls. For example, you know, stroke is a BLS emergency in, in Boston. Uh, abdominal pains usually a BLS call. Uh, that sort of thing. Um, and it only gets ALS if, uh, if the BLS providers on scene um, request ALS backup. But, but the other side of that, uh, the other side of that equation you may not have considered is, is, is it's, you know, it's better seed corn for your ALS providers, um, for your ALS providers eventually. Um, you know, you, you make a big deal about the value of experience in an EMS system uh, or, or experience before going on to paramedic school. Well, here's the perfect way to get it. You know, when you're the, the man on the truck and you're running the vast majority of calls in the system, that makes for very strong BLS providers before they go on to, to uh, paramedic school. They learn how to be good EMTs before they go on to be uh, good paramedics. Um, and as a result, uh, they, you know, it's a, it's a pretty darn uh, strong system up there. You, you mentioned uh, community paramedics and, and, uh, and rural EMS. The, I think we, we have a total inversion of how we uh, deploy our assets uh, in, in EMS. We have it totally backwards. We should do away with the concept of ALS intercepts and go with the concepts of BLS intercepts. We should have BLS. Really? really? Yes. BLS yes, intercepts indeed. to what? Oh, so we what you're saying... So what you're saying is, if I'm gathering this correctly, is if we send uh, an ALS truck and it doesn't need to be an ALS call, get a BLS truck in there to take them to taxi them to the hospital. No, not, not necessarily. What I'm saying is, is you go to any major city and it you 
and it's stocked with it's staffed with with ALS trained providers on ambulances. Some of them two ALS providers on every ambulance. Uh, in cities where you, you can throw a rock at any compass point and hit a fairly major hospital in short order. Whereas go out in the country where ALS might potentially make a difference uh, and response times are longer, transport times are, are longer, what kind of people do you see there? Who are they staffed with? Basic EMTs usually. We need to go the exact opposite. Our, our major urban centers need to be a mostly BLS system. You need to have ALS responders or ALS community paramedics in clinics in these outlying areas um, and they'll run the ambulance uh, if an ambulance call happens to be needed um, and if they don't need ALS care they can they can uh, call for a BLS intercept to transport them to the hospital in the city and they'll rotate in and out you know they'll rotate to the community care or the community paramedicine uh, uh, staff position uh, periodically uh, and from there back to the city to keep their skills up uh, and that way you get ALS providers out to these uh, these smaller communities um, and uh, BLS providers get some some good patient care experience instead of being just equipment bearers and, and stretcher fetchers and I think that makes for a leaner more efficient and stronger EMS system. So let's go ahead and give you the scenario then of um, a family member a family member in the Grayson uh, home uh, needs uh, a paramedic and a, um, a basic provider shows up uh, for advanced level care. Um, they're not going to let you touch any of that equipment, uh, knowing that, uh, you know, the Jedi Kelly Grayson lives in this home, but you can't touch that for insurance purposes. <laughs> uh, I mean, how's that, how are you going to feel about that? I mean, is that okay? I mean, are we going to trust those providers to uh, deliver that highest quality of patient care and, and get that loved one to the facility knowing that they can't give the best care that they can at that time? Well, I, I think we can uh, and I think we should because one thing I've noticed in my EMS career is that, that if, you, if you set the – people tend to meet the expectations you set for them. And the reason we have uh, crappy EMTs and, and undereducated EMTs is because we have said as a system that that's fine and, and that's the kind of education they need. Yet, if we increase their expectations, uh, increase the public's expectations of them and the system's expectations of them, they will generally rise to meet that standard. You know, we used to, I worked in a system that had some pretty darn crappy uh, outdated protocols and and I was tasked to to rewrite those protocols and modernize them and, I, and my goal was was to make the most liberal uh, and, and up-to-date EMS protocols for any EMS system in Louisiana and I think I did it but in the early few months uh, after we implemented those protocols we got a whole bunch of why are you doing all these things or, or who told you you could give that med and so on and so forth and within six months not only were we not being questioned uh, for doing those things, we were being questioned because we hadn't, uh, on the instance, we hadn't done those things. We set higher expectations, uh, and and the you know the public and the emergency departments' uh, uh, expectations uh, of us, uh, you know, grew. Um, and I think the same can be said of, of EMS. You know, uh, request more of our EMTs, expect more of them, and and uh, you know there may be some growing pains, but uh, they'll meet those expectations if you give them a chance. Now, when we think about those BLS providers, what extra training do you think they need to pre be prepared for that? I mean, well, are we just 
Are we just going to let them say, you know, uh, someone's having a severe allergic reaction, help them with an EpiPen if they have it, but just go ahead and put them in the ambulance and give them a, a diesel bolus and get there to the hospital as fast as you can? Well, you know, our guest, uh, for the guest, will probably have some good stuff to say on that. You know, he's been involved with uh, with um, uh, with his code STEMI project, uh, some some uh, system uh, advances where EMTs were were um, applying and uh, applying 12 lead EKGs and sending telemetry. We create these artificial barriers to care. Uh, the, these imaginary lines drawn in the sand, ALS, BLS, and one is uh, exclusively the province of, of paramedics and, and uh, the, the basics shall never encroach. But, you know, how hard is it to attach 12 lead EKG electrodes? You know, four on the limbs, six on the chest. You know, it takes about 30 seconds to put on and about five minutes to teach and teach how to require one. Now, granted, um, to interpret one and to know what's going on, uh, that requires paramedic level education and, and even some some of the paramedics are not all that good at it but to acquire one and to send it to the hospital uh, and thus shorten uh, a door to, door to balloon interval um, what about that can't an EMT basic do? You know what's the most important medication that we administer in STEMIs? Aspirin, BLS intervention, allergic reactions, epinephrine. We got them you know assisting with meter dose inhalers or in respiratory distress or, or you know we're, we're mostly doing CPAP and uh, small volume nebulizers which are becoming EMS or BLS interventions in a great many states. I think the mission creep in that regard is a good thing and if we start to expect more of our EMTs uh, they'll give more uh, they'll give us more. Yeah and I gotta tell you you know I, I just enjoy arguing with you and uh, <laughs> it's really I mean if I could argue with you it really makes my day I don't need to watch TV but, you know, I, and really I was taking that side of the con, but this is really in my five-year plan for the organization. And yeah. when we think about our EMTs and the work that we could, we, that they can do, um, we don't give our EMTs enough credit. And our paramedics now, when we think about, you know, primary care physicians, by the year 2025, they're going to be short 275,000 uh, docs. Mm -hmm. Who's going to take care of these patients? I'm going to tell you who's going to take care of it. Our ALS providers are going to be in the field. They're going to be delivering great care in the field. You know, we're going to have ALS intercept that, uh, you know, we can help our BLS providers out, but we need to get them. Uh, there's no reason they can't read a three-lead EKG. There's no reason that they can't give, uh, uh, you know, Narcan if they need to give Narcan. I mean, they're letting police do it, and some of these systems won't even let the EMTs do it, which is just totally yeah. ridiculous. So, can't, uh, won't, let them, won't let them check blood glucoses, and you can go to any Walmart right now and buy a glucometer. Exactly. Um, it's, it's silly, but, uh, you know, um, and that's the thing. A lot of a lot of EMTs are are stuck in those kind of systems. But uh, you know, the more people that that rail against uh, EMS circa 1980s, um, uh, the voices get louder, and eventually we reach critical mass, and changes start happening. But, you know, I'm glad you said that because I, I think that there's a lot into that tradition. I mean, in, in the course of my career, and I got to tell you, I've been up here at uh, Christian Hospital EMS now for uh, almost four and a half years, and I've systematically moved us to almost an all ALS system. Uh, to where we had 50-50 in employees of ALS and BLS, about 75 paramedics now, and maybe only seven EMTs left. But now, as I look at where the future of EMS is going, 
I may have made a grave error in not keeping those BLS providers. And what we've done, and I didn't get rid of them by any means, I've just encouraged them to continue to go to school and to become paramedics. And I think now we're in a great position to where I can take those paramedics and I could use them uh, for advanced practice paramedics in the field with community paramedicine. But I think in the future, Kelly, we've got two BLS providers on the truck. We're giving them EKG uh, training. We're giving them some uh, medication administration education and we're letting them do the business i mean we talk about the things that als providers do out there what is it that they really do i mean you were absolutely right to say what is it that they really do that uh, a, a, a basic uh, emt can't do that's right you know there there are a few most there are a few things that that paramedics do that that bls providers could not conceivably do and and probably the biggest and most problematic is the shift in mindset um you know the thinking process for a, a paramedic, at least one who who uses critical thinking and, and diagnostics uh, in the diagnosis uh, process, um, versus one who's just a pure skills monkey. Um, there's a fundamental way that they the thinking changes from EMT to to paramedic. Um, but one of the ways you're going to make that gap much narrower is by just you know creating stronger EMTs and, and and they'll learn those things on the feet in the field right. uh, if you if you expect it of them and, and if they're actually having one of my biggest beefs with with the uh, you know the the you need experience uh, mindset is is generally the experience kind of sucks because they're they're on the the street with a medic who, who can't teach an armadillo to dig a hole in the ground um, and they're used as equipment uh, bearers and stretcher fetchers and and that's the sum total of their experience uh, put them you know expect direct patient care out of them uh, where they have to make the decisions for uh, for how that patient is managed treated and transported and you you're going to wind up with a better EMT and that's going to wind up for, with a as a better paramedic a few years down the road well, it sounds like we've got a clinical issue. Yep, I think so. Let us know your thoughts. Uh, email us at uh, the show at ems1.com. And if you think we're full of crap or you want to give us kudos, weigh in with your thoughts. We'd love to hear them. What's that we? What's that we're full of crap thing? Well, I mean, no, I no. Think I, I think it's more you're full of crap. And You can check my eyes. They're green. That means I'm a quart low. But yours, on the other hand, are brown. Thank you very much for playing. My mother used to say that to me, and I never knew what that meant, but uh, now I knew. But So anyway, you know, Kelly, I think that uh, we got a really great guest that's going to join us at the guest table. You and I affectionately call him the uh, ECG Yoda, and I'm going to let you introduce him. Uh, all right, guys. If you uh, if you haven't uh, got this guy's blog bookmark, if you if you don't read his columns on EMS One, uh, go fill that gaping hole in your educational knowledge base, uh, because Tom Boothelay uh, of the Pre-Hospital e- uh, Twelve Lead ECG blog is uh, probably one of the best resources on the net uh, for. Um, EMS specific 12 lead interpretation. He, uh, I always thought of myself as a fairly decent uh, 12 lead uh, interpreter, and and uh, Tom just puts me to shame. And I read his blog and learn new things every day, and quite often feel really stupid, which which uh, forces me to go out and, and learn new things so that I don't feel that way the next time I read. So Tom, uh, welcome to the show, man. Good to have you. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. You know, it's really great to have you here. And I got to tell you, I like to consider myself uh, to be one of those guys that can read some. 
some EKGs, but I don't know where you pull some of these EKGs from, and they're always quite stumping, uh, you know, when I try to look at them. But, you know, my first question I have to ask to you is, how did you get to be so great at dealing with the EKGs and kind of not only being great at reading them, but great at teaching them to those students as well? Well, I think I'm just really interested in the topic. So I, I went to paramedic school in 1995. And so I was right at the cusp of 12 lead ECGs coming to the field. And in fact, they did offer an optional 12 lead class while I was in paramedic school. And I skipped it. So I didn't even go. And um, I graduated paramedic school in November of 1995. And, but then I went and worked inside the hospital in the critical care step-down unit as a cardiac monitoring technician, and we used a system that could mathematically derive a 12-lead ECG from the electrodes, like four electrodes on the patient's chest. For anyone that's familiar, it's called the EASI system or the Easy Lead system. And so I, I became exposed to 12-lead ECGs, and um, I really found them quite fascinating. And so after that, I, I ended up getting hired onto the fire department, I took Tim Phelan's 12-lead ECG class, which I thought was very interesting, and I just started reading up on the topic. So I read Garcia and Holtz. I read Chow's Electrocardiography in Clinical Practice, Teigman's, um, I can't remember what his book is, Advanced Cardiology in Plain English, stuff like that. I just was devouring as much information I could on the topic, and then I started teaching the topic. And so I, I taught nationally in the Critical Care Transport Program out of, UMB, out of UMBC, I did that for uh, four or five years, and then Nick Newdell and I started the EKG Club at Yahoo, which was sort of like an email group listserv, and you know it just it just kind of went on and on and on. And then in October of, of 2008, I started EMS12Lead.com or or the EMS12Lead blog, and and through that I got to know some really really smart guys like Stephen Smith from Dr. Smith's ECG blog. And you just put it all together, and over time, you just start to, um, I think you just start to crack the mysteries of the 12-lead ECG. And then what I enjoy doing is going back and filling in the gaps for people that sort of came up the way I did through paramedic school and were taught a lot of things that really aren't even true. And so I try and, what I try and do is just deconstruct things that are not true and teach accurate information that is actionable at 3 o'clock Sunday morning. So Tom, tell me, what is, in your estimation, what is your biggest challenge in teaching 12-lead ECG interpretation to uh, paramedic students? Well, I guess it depends on who the students are, but I think, I think the biggest challenge for me is there are a certain percentage of students that um, for some reason come in with the idea that there's certain things that they should not have to know. Um, for example, access determination. And so um, people will actually raise their hand and say, why do I need to know that? And so that used to really annoy me. <laughs> but, but after I really started thinking about it, I'm like, well, I guess it's a fair question. People want to know why they need to know that. But if, So I used to start at the class with access determination, um, but about half the class would tune out and then other people would be frustrated and want to know why they needed to know it. And so I'd spend maybe half the class proving to them that they needed to know it, but then there was no time left to speak about STEMI recognition or the STEMI mimics and things like that. So I usually 
refer people back to ems12lead.com to our six-part access determination tutorial um, because I, I need to catch students. Um, you know, they, they want, if, if you can't teach it to them in 20 minutes, um, including commercials and the laugh tracks, then they're, they're just not interested in this day and age. So over time, I've had to really condense the topic into a much shorter and shorter period of time. You know, Tom, you know, you bring that up and I'm one of those guys who would say that, you know, I'm not going to teach you access deviation right now because I don't know that it's really important. I want you to get the basics down. And, and I've kind of tried to teach a basic EK, uh, 12 lead course, an intermediate 12 lead course, and then an advanced 12 lead course. When you talk about, and I want to go ahead and examine, um, you know, the answer to this of why you teach access deviation, why it's important, because I think I'm going to learn a little bit about that myself right now. Well, sure. I mean, if, if you pass over things like right and left axis deviation, first of all, it's the key to unlocking the bifascicular blocks. So if you don't learn your right and left axis de um, deviation, you can't learn bifascicular blocks. And then that can become a real impediment to you learning how the differential diagnosis of wide complex tachycardias because oftentimes those have bifascicular morphology. But there's many, many other circumstances where it can be useful. For example, any time that you see a patient that has left bundle branch block morphology and a left axis deviation, I immediately look at lead before and think, ooh, this is a very common morphology for paced rhythm because if you have a pacing lead in the apex of the right ventricle, you're going to show left bundle branch block morphology in lead V1 and you're going to show a left axis deviation. So then I'll look in lead V4 and go, ah, there they are, those tiny little pacemaker blips. So if you, if you allow this um, Swiss cheese hole gap in your knowledge, there's always going to be a limit to how far you can take the art. Tom, as you know, one of my pet peeves is, is the uh, amount of dogma and myth that we perpetuate in EMS education. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm fond of saying that 50% of what's taught in, in medical education is wrong, and we don't know problem is that we don't know which 50% it is. So in your estimation, what are the, some of the things that we're just teaching flat out wrong uh, when it comes to uh, uh, arrhythmia and 12-lead EKG interpretation? Oh, sure. Um, I think one of the most egregious is the idea that it can't be sinus tachycardia if the rate is over 150. I think that particular myth has done tremendous damage to, to EMS personnel. So... Um, you know, the, the idea that SVT is a heart rhythm as opposed to a, a umbrella term that covers a, a category of arrhythmias. Or um, more recently, in the era of 12-lead education, that ventricular tachycardia must have an extreme right axis deviation, for example. So there's a lot of different myths that have been told over the years that are, are simply untrue that have, that have led to a lot of needless confusion or worse have led to, to clinical misadventure. So um, there's also really often repeated mantras like treat the patient, not the monitor. And while I wholeheartedly believe that you need to interpret the ECG in light of the history and clinical presentation, if you don't recognize signs of life-threatening hyperkalemia, for example, on the 12-lead ECG, your patient could die for want of some, just something as benign as calcium that you probably are carrying around with you. So, you know, there are limits to treat the patient, not the monitor. Sometimes it's not treating the monitor, but uh, sometimes when people say treat the patient, not the monitor, it's because they have no patients to 
form a nuanced understanding of the diagnostic test. Yeah, that's very interesting. You know, one of the things that I always try to combat, and, it, and it's so simple, and we've been hearing this, you know, for such a long time, is you'll hear paramedics say that the 12 lead will take 10 different views of your heart. And, and they're really amazed when we really kind of break that down for them and say that the 12 lead EKG only looks at the left ventricle. And we've been hearing that for years, and it's something that, you know, the EMT uh, instructors just don't seem to get away from. And that really can kind of uh, cause a lot of challenges as well. Well, true. Um, although you can infer some things about um, the right ventricle, for example, um, and and if you are really good at reading P waves, you might be able to determine what's happening with the with the right atrium or or the left atrium. But yes, absolutely, the twelve lead ECG is a diagnostic test that has limits, and its number one use for us is to screen broad symptomatic populations that are presenting the EMS. Um, and we're screening them for ischemia. There are other things you can do with the 12 lead. We've, we've talked about hyperkalemia, for example. Um, but it's pretty important that when people present to us with syncope, that we can screen them for things like long QT syndrome, brugada, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and things like that, especially if they want to refuse transport to the hospital. Because we could have them sign a refusal and send them on their way um, and, and really, that was a prodrome for sudden cardiac death. So, you know, there, there's a lot to know about the 12 lead ECG. You can't learn it all in one day, uh, but it's something that we should probably try to get better at over time over the course of our career. Yeah, I have to agree with that. Tom, what kind of resources do you have for, uh, for the EMT or, or paramedic who wants to increase his, his, uh, his uh, depth of knowledge for 12 lead interpretation? What do you got out there for us, man? Well, we post cases every day at uh, our Facebook page. So that's in, at facebook.com forward slash EMS12lead. So we post a lot of cases from EMS12lead.com, but we'll post good material from anywhere. So um, if people aren't following the FOMED movement or the free open access medical education movement on Twitter, they should probably follow the FOMED hashtag on Twitter, uh, the FOMEMS hashtag on Twitter. And um, obviously, they can, they can find me at ems12lead.com. I have links to our, our Twitter feed, our Facebook page, and things like that. Um, and, or they can download my smartphone app, which is the 12 Lead ECG Challenge app by Limmer Creative. And um, so that works for Apple, for Android, and there's a, a web-based version also. Um, so that they can contact uh, the limmers and um, get codes for that and to get, to get web access to this product for their entire EMS system. And it's over 150 clinically obtained ECGs that I just kind of break down. It's sort of like flashcards, give you a little clinical vignette on the front with a 12 lead ECG. And then on the back side of the card, it's just graphics and an explanation of, of what, what the ECG diagnosis is and some tips to help recognize the abnormalities. Yeah, and we actually had Dan on, Tom, a, a few shows back, and he did give a code. Uh, I don't know if that code is still active, but he did give a percentage off of uh, some of those apps that he has. So maybe now we can kind of uh, marry these two shows together. And uh, if Dan is still uh, offering that uh, percentage for our, our listeners, it may be something to do. Tom, it's really awesome that you came and spent some time with us. Promise us you'll come back, and let's see if we can stump you on some ECG knowledge and uh, something that we can give the listeners. It's my pleasure, Chris. Anytime. Thanks for having me. 
Well, let's go ahead and put the wraps on another Inside EMS. I want to thank Tom Boothelay for being here. Kelly, let's go ahead and give him the address and get the heck on out of here. Let us know your thoughts. Uh, email us at uh, the show at ems1.com. 